Good morning and welcome to worship at Kern Church. My name is Will and I'm the pastor. It's a joy to be with you all today. If you're joining us online, I want to say a special word of welcome. Thank you for making us a part of your, your morning. If you're joining us live or wherever you are, thank you for worshiping with us this day. Here at Kern Church, we're committed to creating belonging and hope by connecting you to a life renewed by Jesus and deeply committed to other people. And my hope for you today is that you feel that, you feel connected to Jesus and connected to other folks. Inside the worship program, there's, uh, there's a list of announcements of things that are happening in the life of the church. I want to share uh, a new, new thing that's happening today, and that is our, our uh, young people, our, our children, are starting to work on their Christmas musical, which is crazy um, that, we're, oh, that we're starting to even think about Christmas. And so I know that that's an exciting thing that they're going to start working on today. Um, and so keep them in prayer as they, as they go about this work at giving of themselves, giving and learning new things, stretching themselves, and even being uncomfortable at some times in the midst of doing something new. But we celebrate, we celebrate with that. There continues to be great ways to get connected on Wednesday evenings here at the church. We have a, a meal that's coming up. You can sign up for this meal online. You can also sign up if you're in person just by signing the, the clipboard as you came in. But there's a sign up, new sign-up form that's available online that you should be able to, uh, to, to do just fine to be able to sign up. And so I invite you to do that. Also, inside your worship program, there's a red belong card. I ask that you take just a moment to complete this card to let us know that you're here. If you've got any prayer requests, any ways that the church can be praying for you, please let us know those as well. If you're joining us online or you don't like paper, you can always scan the QR code, follow the links, and uh, submit the same information online. Well, right now, as we continue to worship God, I want to say a word of prayer and invite God to be here and invite you to open your hearts to receive whatever God has for you to receive today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your presence, for your hope, for your Son, Jesus. I pray that as your church worships you today, wherever they may be, whether they're joining us on our live stream or whether they're here in person this morning or maybe scattered around the world, that your Spirit is blessed, that your heart is blessed, and that you open the hearts of your people to receive a miracle today. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You know, one of the things that I remember about growing up is that I knew all the answers. Um, it didn't matter the question, I knew the answer. Uh, maybe some of you could resemble that uh, remark, perhaps. Uh, for me, it wasn't just that I knew the answers, it was also that I was right. And I knew that I was right. And it was important for me, at least on occasion, maybe more than once, to um, let others know that as well, to make sure that they understood that I was correct. My mom used to say that I would argue with a brick wall, and that's probably right. Of course, if I got into the argument with a brick wall, I'm sure that I would still be right. Um, I don't know about you, but, but I wish that I knew as much today as I did back then. And I'm afraid uh, being a parent, someone is getting payback. Um, it might be the brick wall, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, whatever the case may be, there is something alluring to having all the answers. As we continue to, to, to go through this, this sermon series uh, about doubt and, 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 and looking at this syllabus, uh, a syllabus for dealing with doubt in life, 
you know, it, it comes to, to my, you know, my attention and just like kind of realizing that, that people like and search for answers. And, and, and people like having clarity in life, like having understanding in life. And people like having clarity about the things you know, the things you believe. And it's seen as something in our society and culture as something that has a high value. If you do a Google search for clarity, you'll get all these results and, and all kinds of different results that promise to teach you to teach you how to get clarity in your life, how to create clarity in your life, how to find clarity in your life. And they'll also, some of the highest results, will talk about how clarity is vital to success. One of these results is an article that, that um, was, was linked on, or is on, was, I found on LinkedIn, and it's this assertion that if there is only, the, it opens with this assertion, that, it, that if there is only one thing you need in life to get exactly what you want, it is clarity. Now, like, that's a pretty bold statement. If there's one thing you need in your life to get everything that you want, the, the thing that you need the most is clarity. Now, clarity of purpose and clarity of goals, you know, these are good things, but I think that the quest for clarity in all areas of life often leads people down the path of needing to possess the right answers. I mean, we demand this of our politicians. Unfortunately, we're going to be hearing more from politicians and people running for office in the coming months and years. And, and I know that's everyone's favorite time of, of, of the season, the favorite time every four years or so when that comes around. But when someone decides that they are running for president, they publish their platform. And what happens is, is, that, is that they think, or at least they assume, that the rest of us want to hear what they want to do. So they lay out a platform that details everything they, they know and that details a 12-step plan on how they're going to fix everything that the other poor schmuck like screwed up for the previous period of time and they're going to fix it and they have the secret or the best plan to fix it. Here's my 12-step plan for lowering the cost of housing, stopping inflation, cutting interest rates and making America whatever we want to see. The problem with these plans is that um, too often they're just talking points that the base wants to hear and aren't based in, in, in well, I'll just leave it at that. But for me, I, I would love like, the candidate that got up and said, you know, as a nation, we face, I think I would love this, but maybe I'm delusional. I, as, a, as, a, as, a, we, as a nation, we face significant problems right now. We face significant problems, and over the, the past few years, we've seen housing rates, housing costs go to, to, to kind of like a historical highs. Housing has become historically un, unaffordable. Interest rates are rising, interest rates are, are, are hurting people, inflation is hurting people. The cost of, of health care, health expenses is making the American dream more and more unobtainable. And, and I don't have an exact plan on how to fix this, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to, to throw rhetoric aside and, and, and we're going to build a team that's going to look at evidence and is going to tackle this, these issues head on. And by the, by the end of my time in office, by the end of my time in office, every American family is going to be able to own a home and afford to go to the hospital in the same year. 
Like, I would love that. That's a great goal. And, um, and, and, and of course, their candidacy would be dead on arrival because they don't have the 12 steps on how to get there. The quest for answers and clarity is so powerful. It's so important in our society. But I also think that the quest for answers and the quest for clarity brings us to a sense of doubt that so many people end up facing. As we continue to explore faith and doubt, today we are focusing on what to do about science and faith. And oftentimes what happens is that when many begin to, begin to encounter some of the answers that science has to, to life or that science gives about life, they are met with a crisis of faith and how to, to reconcile some of the things they might have been taught growing up in church and some of the things that they were learning and answers that science has. And this crisis is, is captured in the words that I found, a story I found of somebody who grew up in church but yet had a crisis of faith in their own life. And this is what they said. They said, to be honest, I think that learning about science was the straw that broke the camel's back. I knew from church that I couldn't believe in both science and God, so that was it. I didn't believe in God anymore. The president of the, the Christian research firm, Barna, shares about a time that he was at a dinner party, and one of the guests, uh, other guests at the dinner party was a prominent scientist. And, and this scientist began to lament that, that, the, that the interactions he was having with, with young Christians, with you know, the new, next generation of Christians who were engaging in science was, was disheartening. Here's what he said. He said, every week I am contacted by young Christians who tell me that their faith cannot survive their interest in science. They feel that the church has forced them into an either-or decision, and so they can either stay true to the Christian faith or become intellectually dishonest when it comes to science. Now, now maybe some of you are at a place in your lives where you have figured this all out, and that's great, but there's young people amongst us, there's young people that are connected with faith that, that are still struggling with some of these issues. While there are many areas in, in, when it regards science and faith, while there are many areas that can provide doubt and concern for people, for many people, so much of it boils down to questions of creation, to questions of the origin of things. Many people of faith point to what they see as the biblical, as the biblical understanding of how things were created, and assume that that the world must have been created exact, exactly the way that they read about it in the Bible. And when others encounter science that that, that suggests otherwise, they are brought to a crisis of faith, or at least a point of doubt. So what I want to do right now is I want to, to look at the very beginning of the Bible. So if you want to follow along on your Bible, I'm going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and, and, and surprise, surprise, chapter 1 is the first chapter of the book of Genesis. And this is what we're going to look at today if you want to follow along. Here's what we find in verse 1, very first verse of the Bible. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form, it was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. God saw how good the light was, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the 
waters to separate the waters from each other. And God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. And it happened in that way, and God named the dome sky. And there was evening and morning the second day. And, and then this, this Genesis 1 account continues to go on to talk about how God created things and, and, and God creating things in six distinct days, culminating in the sixth day, the very, the very last day of, of this creation story, when God created all the animals, God created all the animals, and then created humanity in God's image. And then God decided, well, that's a lot of work, so I'm going to take a day off. So God took a day off. If you don't take a day off, you should take a day off because it's important to rest. And so, so God says, the seventh day, I'm going I'm to rest. And that's what God does. So if people encounter science that refutes their understanding of the Bible, what often happens is that people feel that they either have to abandon, abandon the Bible or refute and fight what science may be speaking and science may be saying. And as a result, you get especially some, some loud and well-funded Christians who create museums and, and curriculum that fight the ideas of science and proof text the Bible and proof text science to make science fit their worldview and trying to, to make everything work together. And then... You have people who are, who are put off, who, are, who find this approach off-putting and simplistic, and many of them assume that this is the only Christian response to science. And, and, and so like the young person I mentioned before, if this is the only Christian response to science, they can't buy it, so they quit. They quit believing in God. They assume that faith is incompatible with science, and they're gone. For me, I just feel that this is a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false choice. Many read the Bible as if it were a textbook. Now, now it makes sense that, that many people might read the Bible as if it were a textbook because people like answers. People like clarity. People want to know how things work. And so people are searching for answers and clarity. And, and we are used to textbooks. Well, many of us over a certain age are used to textbooks. Um, our, our, our children now have computers, so um, they don't use textbooks. They use computers that, that have, I don't know, I'm lost. That's technology. <laughs> I'm lost. But, uh, but, but textbooks, if you think about them, or however they're, they're, they're compiled now in an online fashion, they, they describe or report to describe the actual ways of the world in a given subject. So you have a textbook uh, that, that's a math textbook, and it, and it tells you how it works and, and, and how numbers work and how things fit together. The same with, with history or, or science or whatever the case may be. The problem with using the Bible as a textbook, either a history book or a science book, is that the Bible wasn't published by McGraw-Hill. Like, maybe they have like another part of their publishing house that makes Bibles, but the Bible wasn't originally published, at least, by McGraw-Hill. And, and, and for those that don't have textbooks today that didn't get that joke because it wasn't funny, um, McGraw-Hill publishes textbooks. 
Uh, and then, then you try to assume, and when you try to assume that the Bible is, is like a textbook, you end up ascribing to the Bible authority that the Bible doesn't even claim about itself. The Bible never claims to be a textbook. It never claims to be a science book. It never claims to be a history book. The Bible never claims to be a textbook. The Bible claims to be a faith formation book. The Bible claims to be a faith formation book. To recount to you the ways that God loves saving people. To recount to you the ways in which God has saved and continues to save humanity and, and invite people to participate in transformation of their lives and of the world, to participate in the kingdom of God. And if you want to know what, what the Bible is about, one of the great things I, I, I feel about being a United Methodist is that, is that we have this rich history and, and this rich doctrine that, that teaches us and that helps People of faith be, be guided in how to approach Scripture and how to approach life. And, and, and we have some core beliefs as United Methodists. I'm a United Methodist pastor, so I can only speak for the United Methodist Church. But, but we have some core beliefs as United Methodists about what the Bible is and about what the Scripture is. So you don't have to go to Google if you're, if you're concerned about this. We can, we can look deep in ourselves and deep in our tradition. And, and I'll warn you, I'm going to share some of this with you. I'll warn you that the language might sound a bit odd to your ears because this is language that is generations old. It's hundreds and hundreds of years old and translated into English. And this understanding of our, our doctrine about Scripture comes from two different sources, the Articles of Religion and the Confession of Faith. You probably didn't know that, that we had Articles of Religion, but we do. And, and, and so this is, this is what they say. Uh, Article 5, if you're curious. The Holy Scripture containeth, see if it's containeth, you use that on a normal basis, I'm sure. You know, this recipe containeth flour, eggs. The Holy Scripture containeth all, all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, so whatever is not in it, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. The Holy Scripture contains everything necessary for salvation. It's what this says. And in anything that's not in there, it shouldn't be believed as necessary for salvation. And then another way we put it is in, a confession, is in our confession of faith, which is also doctrine. And, and it says this. It says, We believe the Holy Bible, Old and New Testaments, reveals the Word of God so far as it is necessary for our salvation. So, so we believe that the Bible contains what God wants for people to hear so far, so far as it is necessary for our salvation. So it's, it's, it's all about salvation. It's all about faith. It is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule and guide for faith and practice. And whatever is not revealed in or established by the Holy Scriptures is not to be made an article of faith nor is it to be taught as essential to salvation. See, the Bible, the Bible does not claim to teach science about the origins of the world. And, he, and even if the Bible did claim to teach science, it would be a little confusing because the Bible contains at least two different accounts for the origins of creation. And these accounts... They don't really agree on the, the facts 
as a textbook might require agreement on the facts, as if you were reading a history book or a science book. You see, in in the Genesis uh, 1 account of creation that I just read, there is a distinct order of creation that happens in six days. This is something that that people are are familiar with for the most part culturally. Like, God created the world in six days. And what that means was just whatever that means. And, And then in the next chapter... Genesis chapter 2, it contains a second account of creation, and this one reads a a bit differently. So Genesis chapter 1, humanity was the final act of creation, the very end. But in Genesis chapter 2, we read this, that, that on the day that the Lord God made the earth and the sky, before any, before any wild plants appeared on the earth, and before any, any crops grew in the fields, because the Lord hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being formed or human being to farm the land, though there was a stream that arose through the earth and watered all the fertile land, the Lord formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. I love this that, that God blew life's breath into the nostrils of God. This, over the, this, this verse came to me over uh, a couple days ago. I was praying for somebody who, who was having stru- like struggling breathing, and I was just praying that God would, would, would breathe life's breath through them. Anyway, so, so God breathed life's breath through the, the nostrils of the human, and the human came to life. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east and put the human there he had formed. So in Genesis chapter 1, humanity was the final act of creation. And and we read in in Genesis chapter 1 that God created humanity in God's own image. Male and female, He created them. That's what it says. But then in Genesis chapter 2... Uh, uh, this translation doesn't like distinguish here at this point the, between the male and the female, but in Genesis chapter 2, it contains the story of Adam and Eve, and the male human showed up first. The male human was the first thing created. If you've got your own Bible, it may say Adam was the first created being before anything else appeared. Then all the other stuff is created, and then later God is like, well, this, this man can't live by himself, so we need to create somebody for him. So took a rib and, and you know, did, did, did the whole creation thing again and made a woman. And, and, uh, and, and, and if you know the story, it gets into the story of Adam and Eve. So if the Bible is supposed to be a textbook, that explains exactly how the earth was created and exactly what was created. Which text do you use? Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? And if you have to pick one, you, you then have to maybe not ignore, but you have to de-emphasize the other one to a certain degree. But here's the deal. The Bible is not and never claims to be a textbook. The Bible never claims to contain all knowledge, only all things necessary for salvation. All things necessary for salvation. In fact, the Bible and science employ two different languages. I love what, um, what one theologian writes about this. He says, on the one hand, there is the language of data, empirical evidence, causal connections, and probable theories. On the other hand, there is the language that describes the world as God's creation and employs rich symbols and images and poetic cadences. I love this sentence. To try to equate the scientific description of the origin of the world with the symbolic and metaphorical affirmation of the biblical narratives of creation 
is like trying to compare the sound of a vacuum cleaner to that of a pipe organ. Now, we don't have a pipe organ in this setting, but we have a pipe organ in our sanctuary, and, and, and Wanda plays the pipe organ, and, and she plays beautifully. And, 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 if, and if I got up there with a vacuum cleaner to try to lead worship, it's not going to work out. There, there, it's still sound, but it's going to sound awful. And, and so what this is saying is that the language of, of science and the language of faith must be recognized for their distinctiveness, and, and one should not be collapsed into the other's. And this theologian goes on to conclude that the claim that only one of these languages is the voice of truth, and only one of these languages alone provides all that is necessary, is just unfounded and even arrogant. And it's not just that science and and faith speak two different languages. In fact, these two different languages, they don't have to be completely separate from each other. In fact, through history, the language of faith and the language of science, these are things that have have enriched other people and and have enriched each other and influenced each other. Science and and faith can and do cooperate. And and, and I know this because I know so many people of faith who engage in in, in the scientific exploration of the world and and their faith is enriched through it. When it comes to faith or, or the Bible and creation, the central truth is singular. God is the Creator. When it comes to faith and the Bible and creation, the central truth is singular. God is the Creator. This doesn't answer the question of how or or, or why. This doesn't even answer the question of what. It answers the singular question of who. And the only answer that matters is God. The Bible isn't concerned with readers having all the answers or, or complete clarity about the mechanisms of creation or even what actually happened. The Bible and faith is concerned with, and only with, trust in the Creator. Trust in the Creator because trust trumps clarity every day. When you think you have clarity and when you think you have all things figured out, there are always going to be more questions. Something is going to happen and you will ask another question. Even if you think you have all the clarity in the world, something will, will, will happen and, and, and new questions that you hadn't thought of will, will come up again. Clarity doesn't last, but trust, trust can. And this leads me to an encounter that was shared about Mother, now St. Teresa, and a gentleman known or a gentleman named John Cavanaugh. And Cavanaugh was a Jesuit priest who was, who was a philosopher and an ethicist. And, and during the 1970s, Cavanaugh traveled to, to India to spend time with Mother Teresa in her, her home for the dying. And so these are people who are, who are left abandoned to die on the streets, and she brings them in. And, and, and so John helps care for them, and he spends time with them. And he comes to a point in his life as a younger person, he's like, you know what, I need clarity. Because I'm not sure if I'm supposed to stay here and, and give my life to service with, with Mother Teresa or if I should go back home and, and, and go back to America. And so we asked Mother Teresa, will you pray for me? Will you pray for my clarity as I had this decision to make on whether or not to stay or whether I should go back? And, and about this, Kavanaugh said, he, he said this, I was surprised when she said that she would not pray for clarity. 
You haven't anybody, have you ever asked anybody to pray for something for you and they said, no? And that's what happens. Mother Teresa, St. Teresa, is asked to pray for clarity for John Kavanaugh and she says, no. Instead, she said, what I needed was trust. What I needed was trust. Then he responded to her that he assumed that she had always had clarity and, 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 and that she knew what she was supposed to do. And, and Mother Teresa responded with this. She said, I've never had clarity. I've never had clarity. This is one of the most saintly women of all creation who, who made such a difference, who's, who, who's, who, whose picture is a picture of holiness. And she says, I have never had clarity. What I've always had was trust. So that's what I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray that you trust God. You know, some have been asking questions their whole lives, searching for clarity. And I encourage you to ask questions, but at, but at some point you don't need more questions or you don't need more answers. You don't need more clarity. What you need is trust. It's faith. Trust trumps clarity. And so if you think the Christian faith is, is, is about having the answers, the right answers, or having clarity, you might be like the students of, of, the, uh, of the scientists that we met that was at that dinner party. They felt as if they must choose between faith and science. They felt as if they had no choice because they, were, they, they had to have clarity in life. But what I, I, I'm going to tell you now what I didn't tell you then, the rest of that encounter went... After the scientists lamented this choice that many young Christians are facing and that they feel like they have to face, he went on to say this, the choice between faith and science, he says, that's a false choice, of course. And it's heartbreaking that we aren't helping young Christians pursue their calling in science in a way that affirms both science and faith. It's not a simple task, yet, yet if we don't take this job seriously, I'm afraid we're going to lose a generation of scientists and a generation of Christians. And then the person sharing about this conversation continues to tell us how the evening concluded, writing, then, whether it was intentional or not, this scientist demonstrated the remarkable coexistence of his passions. First, he captivated dinner guests with a fascinating description of his team's discoveries, which may save the lives of thousands of people who suffer from a rare medical disorder. And then he brought the dinner to a worshipful close by breaking out the guitar and playing and leading us in the song, How Great Thou Art. You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to have complete clarity to trust in Jesus. You don't have to have complete clarity to trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter what some religious people may think or what some scientifically minded people may think. Faith and science do not have to be at odds with each other. The endless search for clarity and answers, it will disappoint you, but trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus will never disappoint you. I want to close this morning with the directions that are given in, in the first Bible passage that I remember learning as a child. I think this was probably before, that I, before I knew everything. And um, it's, a, it's a proverb. And it may be a proverb that you're aware of and you know, but it's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It's very simple. It says, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust trumps clarity. In the face of questions and doubts and uncertainty, in the face of all this, I invite you to trust in God. And I believe that as you trust in God, God will lead you. Let's pray. God, I thank You for the beauty of Your creation. I thank You for the ways that people have sought to understand it, to search for answers, to help us see a place in Your magnificent mystery. And I pray right now for those who are struggling in their faith, especially if their struggle has to do with how to reconcile their understanding of faith and their understanding of science. And God, I just pray that You open hearts. Ultimately, we can't have clarity. Ultimately, all the answers that people may want is beyond our control, beyond even our ability to possess. But the one thing that You offer is trust in You. Trust in Your Son, Jesus the Christ. So I pray for each one that You open their hearts to receive this trust from You. Amen. May the, God of, may the God of all creation fill your heart with trust and love this day. May you go forth with the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit this day and every day. Be blessed. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, and remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.